listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Fantastic. Great to see faces um, who are part of Red as this technology enables us to do incredible things at this moment as we adapt in the world. And the world is currently adapting. Um, Just over the last 24 hours, I've seen a number of stories in the news about how different people, different organizations, different cities are adapting to the new reality. I saw a story out of Italy where in restaurants they're being reopened, but they're being reopened with clear perspex between the tables. Uh, I saw another article about how Auckland City Council are looking at how they could rearrange their city for a COVID reality with larger bike lanes. Just this morning, I read a story that possibly the English Premier League season could be played out in, of all places, Perth, Australia, something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And so a number of weeks in, the world is adapting to this new reality. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Terry Walling share with us that when something like this happens, there's different ways that we can react as individuals. We can go into a state of denial We can try and conquer it. We can try and keep the track running from the last season, all the while missing what God has for us in a moment of transitions. And transitions are times in which we learn new gifts from God. And thinking about what God is doing in the midst of this season, I feel that is an invitation for us as the church too, at a time like this. Whilst as individuals, we can't miss the gift in the season. But as a church, there's also a gift in this season that there's a moment to adapt to this reality and to actually gain something that we didn't have before. I realized leading a church that perhaps the first couple of weeks, your mind is in this paradigm where you're just trying to keep going what was happening before to replicate in the service what we were doing when we were running live services in our different locations and in our different time slots. But as time has gone on, as in a sense, God leads us now, as the strategic plans of so many churches are almost in the garbage now because we've been disrupted by this event. But the question I'm asking is, what is the invitation in this moment? In the New Testament, there are a group of people who people like Paul and Peter put over churches to help run them as the gospel goes out through the known world. And the name for these people are called elders. And what's really interesting is the first test of an elder is really when you boil down the essence of what the New Testament teaching is for the requirements of an elder is, are they able to run their households according to the values of the kingdom of God? And looking across what Christianity has been in the time in the last few years, in the decade or so before COVID-19 hit, In many ways, our households perhaps have been our weakest places of discipleship. We can come to services where they're put on for us and they're fantastic and I've enjoyed doing that as a leader. But also realize that the place we were often struggling to take ground was the household, be it an individual living by themselves, a share house or a family. And so in this moment, there's this incredible thing that's happening that I didn't see any pastor predicting at the beginning of this pandemic. That God is strengthening. God is doing something new in households and amongst individuals. That the kingdom of God reality 
is first breaking out in our households, which is setting up a foundation because households are the places, when we look at the history of the New Testament, that was the, the energy point for the gospel going out into the world. Many believers in the early church across the Roman world lived in these apartments that the Romans would put up. Often they weren't very well built and would fall down. But these apartments existed of a room where you would sleep and most of your socializing was actually done in an open space in the middle of the apartments where people would cook their meals and where if you were living out the gospel, it was very clearly seen by those who were living shoulder to shoulder with you. And so I believe at a moment like this, there's this great strengthening. We can't go out and rub shoulders like we could, but there is a moment where we will be able to as, as quarantine requirements are relaxed. And so I think this is a moment of strengthening. This is a moment for God taking territory in our home before we go out again. And so to learn the lessons that God has for us as households, as His universal church, I would love to open the Scriptures, and we're going to do that this morning, and we're going to look at the book of Acts. We're going to look at a moment that happens just before that gospel goes out through the world, through ordinary people like you and me. We're going to turn to chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 8. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, After His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 40 is a really important number to take a note of here. This is the years that Israel spent in the wilderness. This is the amount of time, 40 days, that Moses spent on the mountaintop with God as God gave his Torah, his instructions to Moses to then bring down to the people. Something's happening here which links wilderness and instruction. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So there's a gift and a moment of wilderness and instruction. Jesus continues, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a key moment in the story of Christianity that we are wise to take stock of. Often after Easter, we can almost fast forward the story. We love the story of Pentecost where the Spirit falls. Perhaps the story of the Ascension where Jesus is lifted up. But this in-between time is really important to understand what God does. How a group of disciples are transformed into apostles, that is, sent ones. And so what we're looking at here is a time between the cross and the Holy Spirit falling in the upper room, in which a new creation has been inaugurated, set into motion. Jesus has been resurrected, conquered death, sin, and destruction. Something new has happened in the world. 
And the disciples must adjust to this new reality, for it's not easily seen if you're looking just with a human perspective. Because what seemed like the greatest defeat in the eyes of the world, the death of the Messiah upon a tree, which Deuteronomy said made you unclean, actually viewed through spiritual lenses is the greatest victory. And what looks like a time of mourning to many people as their Messiah has been killed is actually a time of victory in which there were key lessons that the disciples must learn in order to come back stronger which is the name of this series. How do we come back stronger from this time as His church renewed, revived, resurrected? And so learning from this period where there's wilderness, instruction and a gift is absolutely essential for us. The disciples had entered a transition, an in-between space located in the overlap between two time frames. And in all transitions, as Terry told us a few weeks ago, there are lessons to be learnt. And I think this is so pertinent for us right now. I can just see it. We're eight weeks in. There's a few more cars on the road. People are pushing the limits of quarantine. People are going into a new normal. Instead of going to the cafe now and go, we go and get the takeaway. We've got a new habits. Humans normalize. This week we put at our Rebuilders podcast, and this is a resource we've been putting out to help churches lead through this moment of crisis. And I thought a couple of people who would be great to talk to are two of my friends who are pastors in Northern Ireland. What is different about Northern Ireland is that Northern Ireland is one of the few Western contexts that actually has been in crisis for decades, having gone through a a civil war, really, uh, terrorism, social upheaval. And it was really interesting. So I said to my friends, Andy and Alan, as I interviewed them, how do we learn from you of what it is to lead in a crisis? And they both said really the same answer from the start. They said that what's interesting is that when you're living in crisis, it becomes normal. Alan shared it was normal for him growing up to actually that his mum checks under the car to see if there's a car bomb. Now that's alien to me. But the point there is one that's really key, that this crisis will become normalized. And when it becomes normalized, we can flip back into modes where the gift is lost. So in this moment, there's something we can learn from the disciples as they adjust to a new world. And we get an insight into this by something that Jesus said before he came to the cross. And so open your scriptures to Mark 8, verses 34 to 35. Where Jesus said this to his disciples, they didn't get it. But now on this side of the resurrection, it comes clearer into view. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus had done his saving work on the cross. This was a work that humans could not do. God came down and took for us the price that we should have paid on the cross. And in doing so, he bridged the gap between humans and God. He defeated sin and death and destruction. The rebellions that humans had set against God in the garden 
was undone at this moment. And humans could again approach God when we follow Him with confidence. So there's a lesson here in this in-between moment, in-between cross and the Spirit falling that's absolutely key. And there's a really interesting question, which is, why does this time frame of 40 days occur between Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' ascension? And I believe we almost have to posit a counterfactual here. Why isn't that when the disciples see the risen Lord, that all of a sudden the Spirit doesn't fall on them and they actually just then go out into the world empowered? Why is there this in-between time? There's this in-between time because they're learning a key lesson here. And the lesson is, before the Spirit can come with power, the cross-shaped life must be encountered. You see, in that first reading, it said that as Jesus shared what was going to happen, the disciples wondered, hang on, you've come back from the dead. Are you now going to bring Israel back into its glory? What they're saying there is they're not getting it. We see all through Jesus' ministry, the disciples often jostling for glory. They're still seeing this through the paradigm of earthly power. They are drawn to Jesus. They see something in Him. This spiritual authority is undeniable. But there's something going on in them where they mix up what they see in Jesus, their desire for His spiritual authority, for their own desires for power and glory and vindication. In the season before the cross, in the pursuit of God's glory, the disciples struggled with the temptation to expand their own glory, to steal glory from Jesus. And so... The disciples had to learn the lesson of the cross before they could have the power of the Spirit. The road to the upper room leads through Calvary. And this is absolutely vital for us to understand. Because we as a culture face two kinds of challenges. Oh, sorry, we as a church and as a culture both experience this challenge. You see, before the virus came, before COVID-19 hit, we were actually experiencing another kind of virus. The church was being slowly infected and eaten away by a virus where we wanted to follow Jesus, but increasingly we wanted to do it on our own terms, where our engagement with faith and discipleship was more and more put through the paradigm and the prism of what we can get out of it while still maintaining our autonomy and our personal freedom. And I was in countless meetings over the last few years talking to pastors from all around the world who were struggling with this reality that people had too much freedom. Church attendance was becoming less and less. More and more people who sat in our pews. The Barna research, which we work through as a church, tells us We're not living biblical lives. Before the virus came, there already was a virus in play. And this undermines our culture where increasingly we see our culture beset and upset by radical individualism. Part of our difficulty in fighting this virus is that it cuts across our understanding of radical individualism. When our governments actually say to us, you need to limit your freedom for a greater good for the community, this buckles against what our culture has taught us previously, that you're your own boss, you're the master of your own destiny, 
the captain of your soul. And this has infected the church, not just in the pews, but also in the pulpit. Well, sadly, so often what has become the model of where the church should go is increasingly defined by a kind of leadership which is also built upon radical individualism. And so at this moment, as the COVID-19 virus hits, as we're humbled, as we're restricted, as we're hemmed in for the greater good, As people like me preaching here realize we don't have the control we had five months ago. There's a humbling for the pulpit and there's a humbling for the pew. And so there's a lesson to be learned that the way to see this is actually to take upon us the humbling of the cross. For the road to the upper room, as I said, leads to Calvary. It is the space between Calvary and Pentecost where we discover a cross-shaped life and life in the Spirit, which is a balanced life, which holds the seriousness of a life of taking up our crosses with the lightness and joy of the dance of life in the Spirit. So how do we live this cross-shaped life? Well, the first way that we do this is that we must see the world through the lens of the cross. The cross is the dividing line in history. It's the central lens with which to view the world through. After Jesus' work on the cross, reality now orbits around the cross the way our solar system orbits around the sun. Jesus' death has inaugurated a new era. A new reality breaks out in the world. The cross is the dividing line in history recognizing how we mark time. John Stott says this in his book, The Cross of Christ. So the cross means more than the crucifixion of Jesus. It includes our crucifixion, the crucifixion of our flesh and of the world. This is the paradigm through which we must view our lives. The cross is a kind of border post, a customs point, if you like, between the old and the old world and the new reality which Jesus is bringing. And because Jesus has inaugurated this new reality in the world, the old order is still out there calling us to live in our own steam, to actually be gods of our own life. But the new creation, the resurrection world that Jesus has wrought in the world To enter into that, we have to pass through the checkpoint of the cross. And pride is going to be turned back at that customs point. So once we begin to see through the lens of the cross, we're then invited into the second point. And the second point is to follow Jesus' command, to take up your cross. We are called to live the cross, to actually see that, that the cross is a kind of lifestyle into which we're invited into, that it changes every way in which we behave. You see, Jesus died on the cross for us as a free act of grace, yet we can also choose to refuse the cross, even sometimes while calling ourselves the name Christian. There is this difference, this stark, clear delineation now between the way of the cross and the way of the world. 
John Stott lays this out in this little table, which I've adapted. The way of the world says, be self-justified, be self-righteous. You are the authority. Instead, the way of the cross says, no, it's not your justification. It's not your righteousness. You can't achieve any of that. All that has been done for you on the cross. You don't need to justify yourself. Jesus has justified you on the cross. The way of the world says, indulge, give in. You're built for pleasure. The pleasure principle says that the hedonistic life, that life is simply about squeezing all of the marrow and the wonderful experiences out of life. That is everywhere around us. And that temptation existed before quarantine and it exists now. To simply in this moment, hibernate and feast upon our pleasures. The way of the cross is actually to take up one's cross. To realize that humans are not built purely just to consume pleasurable experiences. That there's a greater cause. And we enter into that greater cause by taking up our cross. The way of the world tells us to self-promote, to advertise, to put ourselves forward, to be our own advocates and, in a sense, promote ourselves to the world. Instead, the way of the cross is that what we boast about is Christ crucified. We don't need to sell our own story because the greatest story has been told. We find our identity through the cross. But God loves you. You don't need to prove your worth to other people. You don't need to shape a personality. You don't need to put yourself forward. We find out who we are when we recognize that Jesus has done the ultimate work on the cross. And therefore, all we can do is tell the world about how wonderful Jesus is and what he did for us. And lastly, the way of the world is self-glorification, self-idolatry, where your will is the most paramount thing that exists. You are the boss. But instead, the way of the cross gives the crucified Christ glory. So our vision of what should happen, what the optimal outcome looks like in our lives has to pass through the cross. Our vision of the good life, the optimal life, must pass through the cross and be resurrected into the other side, into life with God. Less of Him, more of me. His cross is the answer to our pride. His cross is the answer to our insecurity. Vinoth Ramanchandra says this, Wherever the cross is preached, it carries the stigma of scorn and shame. The world doesn't get it. It's an offense to the world. In the Roman world, it was the most offensive, humiliating symbol. And still is as offensive today. The message it embodies, continuing with the quote, is a scandal to the rich, the proud, the powerful, and the religious of every age. It is God's answer to the idolatry of the human heart. So finally, the third way in which we live the cross-shaped life is to lay down our lives so that we may receive Jesus' resurrection life. Being filled with the Spirit first requires a kind of emptying that we encounter in the cross. As we lay down our lives, we are resurrected in His power. Here's a little mathematical equation for the mathematically minded amongst you. The cross 
which is an emptying, a dying, plus the Spirit, which is a breathing of God's breath, His Ruach Spirit into us, His pneuma, this life, this air, which reanimates us, not in our own life. God's breath, His life comes out of His lungs, and we are reanimated with the life of God equals resurrection. And this, friends, is the basic formula for renewal and revival. Simon Ponsonby says this, The glory of the Spirit-filled life flows from the agony of the cross-shaped life. Only as we constantly identify with the cross of Christ can we expect to know the power of the Spirit that gushes from it. The river of life flows from the place of the skull. Cross plus Spirit equals resurrection and resurrection is renewal. Cross plus spirit equals resurrection, and resurrection is revival. At this moment, this humbling, this walking through, this this moment of pain and suffering and restriction, there is an invitation to His church to actually step into that incredible balance between the cross-shaped life and the power of His Spirit. We are going through an emptying that has to come before we can be filled up again. God is laying the foundations for us to discover again what it is to live in His glory, to live in His Spirit.